Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Fade, everyone. How's it going, Joe? Chris. You're looking particularly happy and giddy yes, today. This, this, is a, this is a person I'm very, very fond of. We've got with us today. You want, uh, do you want to introduce our... Uh, but the the uh, extraordinary Patrick Gilroy with us here today. The, uh, I don't know how you would describe him. He's like sort of a giant Bond villain. <laughs> Jaws. Yeah. Um, sort of a, 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 a polymath, a genius, uh, and uh, <laughs> has had a, an extraordinary life, so we're really delighted that he can join us today. Very welcome, Pat. While he's in the process of trying to sell a company. <laughs> Pat, I wanna, we're going to talk about a few different things today, but I want to ask you first of all about when you arrived in Trinity in... Uh, what year would that have been? Nineteen eighty nine. Eighty nine. <coughs> yeah. Uh, was that when you first encountered Joe Brawley? Yeah, it would have been. Joe's a, suddenly looking a bit shifty. Eighty nine, eighty nine or ninety. I, I'm not, I kind of might have shown up a little bit in first year, but I, I didn't really play that much. I uh, I played a bit now, but um, I really got to know him in in, in ninety more um, so. Um, it was unusual because in Trinity, like I was in an engineer, which wasn't exactly the top faculty, let's say, in terms of uh, status in the college. Couldn't um, attract the posh girls, right. <laughs> then, the ones with the cricket, yeah. the cricket jumpers. And, and then the... you were playing Gaelic, uh, so you were really the bottom of the pile. <laughs> and then you happened to be from the north side of Dublin, so you really <laughs> didn't really fit in. <clears throat> but um, the Gaelic club there was an exceptional uh, group at the time, and... It was a unique bunch of people. I mean, they just, to this day, were all still in touch with each other. But it was just an extraordinary time. It was probably one of the best footballing experiences I ever had because really we shouldn't have been competing. And yet we won two Division Ones and were unlucky maybe not to win Sigerson's. But the actual effort and the commitment from that group of people to each other and the bond that was created like it's it, it lasts today like I mean, it's 30 something years probably and we'd still be as tight if anyone's in a corner or if something happens they're all looking out for each other and you keep stumbling into each other over something to do with business or whatever but it, it's like you never left college and um, just a fantastic group of people he, he was very shy actually you know and he's right there was a magical chemistry and uh, I mean, some of our ad- adventures were extraordinary. But uh, Pat really only blossomed after Trinity, you know, after after we beat them in the All Ireland semi final in '93, <laughs> and Johnny McGurk, <laughs> Johnny McGurk, all five foot six of them, full of badness. And Dublin had decided that day that they would kick all the kick. I mean, Pat's six foot six. They'd kick all the kickouts to Pat. You see, because Johnny is only about five foot six. And my abiding memory was that every time a ball came in the air, Johnny would just hit Pat as hard as he could with his fist on the back of his neck. And Pat's arms would go back, you know, like a man followed out of an airplane without a parachute. And of course, a big man never got a free. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was impossible. And then, of course, if Johnny did get the ball, he would duck under Pat's arms 
Dave on the ground, given the impression that Pat had, there'd been a high tackle. <laughs> so, so <laughs> he, he was, he was, he was outfoxed then, but uh, he very quickly learned how to, how to outfox others. And uh, I mean, the rest of his career really has spoken for itself. You, you got the, when you went to France, did you get the Medal of Honor from Jacques Chirac? Chirac, the Medal d'Honneur? Or the, what, what was I the? I remember who was the, um, he got the, uh, uh, Chevalier de Ordre de Merite, which is kind of their honor system. It's like an OBE. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's like a knighthood. Like a knighthood. Sir Patrick yeah. Gilroy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was a nice award now. Yeah, what was that for? So, uh, I mean, I, I had sold the company to a French company in 2002, and then I stayed working with them for 14 years, and I kind of worked in different parts of the world with them and ran the UK and Ireland business and grew the business quite significantly. But got heavily involved in the France-Ireland Chamber of Commerce and I was president of that for two years, actually, while I was managing Dublin. Um, I was just about to go <laughs> bankrupt. <laughs> and, uh, I decided, for whatever reason, to decide to rescue it. Um, so after that, you know, we came out of the financial crisis. It, the, the chamber flourished afterwards and... Uh, they, they, the guy, the ambassador that, that was here at the time asked me would uh, accept the award. So it was a really nice evening, actually, you know, because they invite family and friends and uh, more colleagues and that. So something different. And, uh, you know, when you give a speech if in you're French. Ever, if, you're ever, if you ever do legal work for Pat, which I do, you know, quite regularly, you get phone calls at like quarter to five in the morning. Right. Have you got that? Have you got that contract drafted? <laughs> but that works well. <laughs> that like a, works well for he you. He says, right, he says, we're going to New York, New York tomorrow morning. I sometimes I says, I've got you on the first floor. <laughs> he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't discuss it with you or anything. This is absolutely true. One time he rang me, I was at a, you probably did, I was at a minor match. Our minors were playing. And I get this call and he says, oh, I need you in New York in the morning. I says, I said, oh, he says, I've booked you onto the flight. He says, you need to be a double over. <laughs> for fuck's sake. I said, so this is true. So I get on the flight, go to New York. We go up and we're having a meeting in Goldman Sachs in the top floor. And their their global head of private equity there, you know, they're corporate lawyers. And Pat, you know, like a giant, that's supposed to be like a sort of a giant Rolf Harris with charts out in front of him, <laughs> drawing these dr drawing these diagrams for world domination on the wall. You see, as they sit there in total silence, you know, he's such a huge man, and whenever he's enthused by something, you know, he, he's very, very, you know, like Doctor Paisley, he's the centre of a test. You see, <laughs> Thanks, and, and in the middle of it, it's almost a and in the middle of it, in the middle of it, he's about ten minutes in, right? And he goes, he goes. Oh, Jesus, he says, I'm dying for a show. Can I, I need to go. And, and everybody's like, oh, oh, yes. Oh, yes, Mr. Gilroy. I can, perhaps, I, can, can you show Mr. Gilroy to the door? <laughs> and everybody's sitting there. I'm going like, oh, yeah, it's not. And you're like, oh, yes, don't worry. It's just that's something about this. <laughs> and it is like a, it's just like a tidal wave in front of you. You know, and everybody's just. And I imagine, in a way, Pat, that that was how it worked out when you went to the dubs because at that stage the dubs were a laughing stock I, mean, I remember the morning of the 2011 final on the bummer listing Kerry were playing Dublin Pat had been with the group two and a half years then this was it this was now or never and Dublin hadn't won they'd been in the wilderness for a long time and on the bummer listing was on I was in one of the radio programmes early on the morning before the game itself and the bomber listened sarcastically, said, he said, oh, no, he said the last time that, that the Dubs beat Kerry, he says, in, in Croke Park, Elvis was still alive. I remember that ringing and this idea that, you know, this was going to be a very one-sided day. But let's go back to when you took over Dublin and that whole... Yeah, it, it was a funny thing because... I had just retired from playing club football the previous March and I was around the house a bit and Yvonne said to me, uh, you know, <laughs> you probably need to find something to do on a Tuesday and Thursday because uh, I, I kind of do a lot of things on a Tuesday and Thursday night and you being here now is not great. So she said, just get involved with a team or some description. So I started helping out with our under 15 team or 14 team in the club and I did a little bit with DCU Freshers. And then I came back one day I think it was in July or August, maybe it was August. And I said to her, listen, I said, uh, 
I got a phone call today and asked me would it be interested in going for the Dublin job and she goes that's typically you she said I told you to go off and do something nice <laughs> take and the under 14s and you're doing the under 14s that's grand and then you come back and say now you want to do the Dublin job and like as she always did she just said look if you want to do it just do it but she says like it's, it's up to yourself it's fine um, so I went to the kind of so called interview um, which was you know how you fix kind of thing and it wasn't. <laughs> there were three people sitting the other side of the table. I was just looking at me saying, well, what would you do? And what do you think the problems are? And I, I just gave my straight answer. But I said to them, look, it's not going to be fixed overnight because it's, it's, they're very close, but the top teams are definitely a good step ahead of them. So it's going to take a couple of years to probably get over the line. You could probably continue to win Leinster's, but the top teams were just a good few you know, um, years ahead of them in conditioning and all sorts of things. So, anyway, I I literally drove. I, yeah, yeah, I literally drove out of the hotel after about ten minutes, and as I'm literally out of the car park, I got a phone call to say that's your job now if you want it. And uh, I was shocked because I, 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 I still was kind of coming to terms with first of all being asked because I wasn't expecting to because just it just wasn't on my radar. And then. I, I had called Mickey Wheel and I said to him, well, if I'm doing this, I'd need you as a coach because I've no experience of coaching at that level and, you know, we'd have to get a proper system behind it and get the sports on He said, yeah, we can box all that off with DCU and get people involved. So once I knew I had that back up, I kind of felt confident enough to... But you had no real managerial experience at all. It was a huge step at that stage. No, I mean, uh, they no, were the most I, I, famous no. team in our... Uh, they weren't the, by any means the best and they were chronic underachievers, but they were the I most did, famous team in our... I Vincent's under 8s to under 12s. <laughs> for four years aye, so you had a good and I had two months uh, with the under 14 you'd have been an impressive CV exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the the striking thing from the outside was that you know with that Dublin team up on the lane you always get the feeling that they that they that they were happy to celebrate failure I think something that that we've seen with with Mayo and a fault line that they've had I mean I always thought that if you had been the manager of that Mayo team, they would have won two or three All Irelands. But talk to us a bit about how you how you went about changing the culture. Wasn't there? Like yeah, it's it, it, it's a tricky one, really, because if you go back, Dublin had started to make Dublin had fallen completely into the doldrums after '95, and you know hadn't won a Leinster for seven years, and so back winning Leinster's was a big thing back in 2002. People kind of forget that we'd gone so far that couldn't even win a Leinster title for seven years so um, there was a lot of good work going on in clubs like my own club Kilmacud had both started to do serious work DCU had started to do serious work so all of a sudden in 2005 you had a Sigerson was won by largely Dublin players involved in 2006 like Stephen Cluxton and them were involved in that then you had Vincent's won an All-Ireland club followed by Kilmacud winning one so that that hadn't happened either for 20 years. Do you know what I mean? Like, we weren't winning all Ireland clubs. But the group that we went into, I, I think they had gone to where they could possibly go. Uh, physically, they couldn't take the elite level of training. It wasn't that their preparation wasn't there, but you just couldn't take it. They, were, they would break down. And, you know... Was there not something about you taking them? You decided, I think, after 2010, or in 2000, after 2009, which was a full disaster... In 2010, did you not? Was there not something about six weeks in a row in the morning? Oh, well, see, what we did in 09, we had a great Leinster final. We we down to 14 men and we won. We beat Kildare. We were a decent team at the time. And then we got hammered in the quarterfinal. And, you know, physically they were in good shape, but mentally there was definitely issues there. And I remember writing a list that night saying, these fellas will never play for Dublin again. And I think of the list of 11 I wrote nine of them have seven all Ireland <laughs> <laughs> so it goes to show you your clarity of thinking after getting hammered on a, on a I'll tell you how bad things got Pat Rugby and he says he says he says what to meet you after 2009 do you remember yeah he says and we met in Cavanagh's on the old Malahide Road we were there anyway Pat was annoyed you know because he's you know like anyone who loves their country you know, he takes it very personally and we talked about what was wrong and the culture and all of that. We talked it up and down. Pat was very prickly that evening. Don't know if you remember. I do. And 
I had talked to him about, you know, there were players there who quite clearly, you know, were, I thought putting themselves before the, the mm. team. And we had a very long conversation, as you do with Pat, you know, and he probes and probes and probes and probes. And I said, he, then, he, he just lost his temper with me. And I said, you know, I, I see the team's future, Pat, you know, I think you could do, definitely do three in a row, burn cups as I was leaving. And he said it after me, go and fuck yourself. <laughs> and of course, you know, uh, typical of me doesn't, you know, he didn't flinch at the size of it. And, you know, like, Pat, you were a very young man. There was a huge spotlight on you. It was very humiliating. I remember that day against Kerry. Like, the game was over after 10 minutes. And the grip had, the grip had failed. And, and, and so it was, it seemed to me then over the next period of time, like, you had players there like Bernard Brogan, mm. who had never really performed. They performed in bits and pieces and celebrated and all that sort of thing, but never really performed. How but they were young. How, I mean, he was. How, young. how did you? How did you? How did you? How did you sort of move that dial from this group of happy chappies, you know, going out and celebrating and copper face jacks and you know celebrating mediocrity to a group that were really midway through two thousand and ten? Mm. They were. You could see now. Okay, this is this is now a serious project. Hadn't you a league game against Tyrone, as I recall? Our first league game the following year was Kerry. In Kerry, and we'd never we hadn't beaten Kerry in Kerry in a league or championship for thirty two years. So after losing them, the league fixtures come out, and it's Kerry Fort game, and I went, "Oh, jeez!" <laughs> <laughs> I was depressed enough as it was. I, I mean, after that night, I, I, it's hard to explain to people how bad it was. But my wife would always tell her the story. She'd be down at the school, and people would be going, "So sorry for you." <laughs> she, she would look at him and go why are you sorry for me like, I didn't know it's that idiot over there who decided to do this and anyway she said to me after about three weeks of me not saying a word in the house she said I thought you said you knew what I was do you were doing and I said well, I thought I did <laughs> I said I'm missing a few bits obviously and she goes for fuck's sake she says Jesus look she says whatever you have to do just go and win it now just whatever you have to do just do it right and I said okay fair enough so I literally didn't leave the house I'd say bar go to work and I didn't go to the pub I didn't go to anyone didn't speak to anyone none of the panel none of the management nothing for about four and a half weeks and then I was rattling me around watching the match I was like what the hell I said to just this we had prepared well and it just they did not perform near what they were capable of anyway I decided to go down the sports psychology route and interviewed a load of psychologists right I did ten and I said He's a waffler. He's a big, big he's fan. Yeah, well, I he's a big fan. This now. Okay, I want to talk <laughs> so, about this. So, so that fellow's a waffler. Because I was asking him all this. I just said, look, you've seen the match. I said, like, what do you think happened? And they give all sorts of answers. They were complacent. They weren't, like, they were nervous. So they weren't complacent. They weren't, like, they were playing Kerry, so yeah. they couldn't. Anyway. Who were, the, who were the champions? No, they were, Tyrone were the champions. Tyrone were but, the champions. But, but Kerry did win it that yeah. year. Um, so, so anyway, I, I just basically gave up on that front. And then one of my selectors, true one of the Trinity guys, gets me to ring this guy who was more of a business consultant, football guy. Yeah, he had some psychology background, but he was more of a consultant. Anyway, cut a long story short, I ring him and I said to him, look, what do you think went wrong? Like, Or, you know, what was the problem? Sorry, you know, you saw the match. Huh? He says, I saw the match. Yeah, yeah. He says, do you want the real answer? I said, well, yeah. I said, like, I've, I've gone through 10 people here and I, I genuinely want to get the real answer. He says, well, I'm speaking to the problem. <laughs> but fuck me. I was just like, oh, my God. Like, what have I just ragged this fella who I, just now told me? I just was starting to feel a bit better. I was like, oh, no. Oh. I said, but then I was intrigued. He said, why? So he says to me, well, he said, what do you know about the brain? I, I said, well, very little. Anyway, anyway, he went into some simplistic things that are probably handy to know from a management perspective about how our brains work, etc. And I went, because he described emotional hijack where people get overstressed and then they don't perform to their yeah. capability, right? Very simple thing to deal with. But if you don't know it, it's a, it's a problem. And if you never got it yourself, it's very hard to understand it. Anyway, 
explained it simply, but he was really a football guy uh, more than, than, than let's say, a psychologist. He, he was all about actually fix the problem by doing certain things in training and you don't have to do a whole load of other stuff really. You do a bit of it, but... Anyway, uh, I embarked on a journey then about learning about psychology and I, and I literally was up in his house, I'd say, 18 hours a week. And I did enough to actually nearly have completed a diploma in psychology. I was that <laughs> obsessed at that stage about it. So, but then I knew. I'm just thinking of the poor fellow's doorbell ringing at five o'clock. I'm not joking. <laughs> five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but I, I felt then I had a good handle over that aspect, which I had no clue about uh, before. And how much uh, of a difference does that make? A huge, huge. I, so that winter. And it was all about my engagement style, right? I just subtly changed things. But we that winter, anyway, we went up and played Monaghan, I'd say, three times anyway. And it was always a wet, filthy night in November and uh, December. And we'd trained hard at that stage. Like, we, we'd got them fairly fit for winter time. But mm. it was a brand new group of people, like Philly McMahon and all these guys, Gogara. You'd had a cull. You, well, no, you, we hadn't you had culled anybody because we just were getting these guys because we couldn't train them. But we trained this other bunch that, you know, were the up and comings. Um, and we let the other lads off, kind of, the fellows who had played. So anyway, we ended up and we, and we had very, very physical games against Monaghan as the... Fairly. And on one stage, remember Seamus McEnany, he, he says, did you get them all out of prison? <laughs> and, uh, like a dirty dozen. Oh, they, were, they, were, they were just, they, they didn't shy away from anything now. And they were great, great fellas. Uh, but I remember after the third game, uh, a certain goalkeeper coming up to me and he says, did you have a lobotomy? And I said, why? He says, you're totally different. And I said, how am I different? He says, you're asking us questions and you're, getting stuff from us. He says, it's the same messages, but he says, you're doing it a different way. I said, ah, I did a little bit of work on that. So I, I really did change the way I was engaging with them to get them more ensuring that they understood what we were trying to do. And that was probably the key change from that aspect. Um, but then we ratcheted up the training and like, I, I think I have a diary there that I think in the month of December, say from the 10th to the 10th of January, I think we did 48 training sessions. And 48 we training sessions in one month, month? In one calendar month, well, like 30 days. And and what we had done was we trained in the morning on the field, we trained in the evening on the field, we did in the gym the next morning on the field, on the field the next morning and on the field that night, we might give them a day off and then go again double on Saturday and Sunday. And the more we did, the more they were able for it because they were very young and they started to get into a level. So we knew going down to Kerry that they were going to be way fitter than Kerry come that game in, in February. And it like a win that day was a dream, but they were going so well. As you said, geez, the Kerry were just back from holidays, but it was psychologically a huge thing to beat them. Even though it was only a league game in February, but to beat Kerry in Kerry was a massive weight off the back and it gave people hope that the madness we had just put them through was going to yield mm. some results and so we then won the next three against teams again that we hadn't been beaten over the last five years regularly so we were top of the league after four games after taking that hammering so and look we had our bumps and our hops in the road after that but but we never really looked back we veered, veered off against yeah, but, me badly as I recall the Tyrone thing was massive because Tyrone had done a lot of damage to Dublin over the previous five or six years. They'd beaten you in big games, you know. They had, they had um, reveled in their victories over you. You know, there had been a tremendous relish, as there was all over the north when they were doing it. But I can recall that feeling that, okay, all well and good so far. Carry back, Holly. But I remember thinking, this Tyrone game, this is really important. Because to come to Tyrone, I remember the game was in Tyrone, wasn't it? Yeah. It was just a league game, but it was a huge game. Mm. There was a huge crowd in Healy Park. Anyway, I'll leave the... I'll yeah, leave the yeah, I mean, if we, if we if we won that game, we had a chance of qualifying for the final because we'd had a draw along the way. And if they lost, they were relegated. And I think at halftime, we were up by nine points. Uh, we had physically really confronted them physically and we had a big strong team like with a lot of guys that were big and strong and so we had stood up to the physical challenge that maybe we didn't but we had the troops to do it and then fellas did extraordinary things like fellas scored goals that probably never score a goal again or, or never did score a goal again but we got I think we got three that day uh, and I remember half time saying oh God, we can't 
we can't go out and beat these by 20 points now. Like, and, and so we, we sort of changed the structure of the team and said, look, let's see if we can control the game a bit better this way and win by six or seven would be fine. And anyway, we all, I think, went down to four and the lads went up and scored two points and won by the six. And anyway, it was that was a big day because that was a big monkey off their back again, you know. And you went for a meal locally afterwards. Yeah, we found a great place to have our <laughs> meal. Um, I'm, try, I'm trying to remember the name of the place. Um, Quinn's Corner, was it? No, it's not Quinn's it? Corner. Um, Kelly's Corner. Kelly's. Kelly's, yeah. So we had booked. So this would be a place Kelly's. where the drone team would eat. And uh, it just happened to be that the home team were eating there. <laughs> <laughs> and I think my logistics guy had booked us in as the Legion of Mary or something. Um, so it was quite, it was quite, uh, it was quite bizarre. They were very unhappy and very depressed and went shock when they saw us arriving into their restaurant. But I mean, it was the closest place. I mean, that's, it was just pro practical logistics that we went there. So we couldn't qualify for the league. So I said, look, they, we're finished the league now. That was our last game. So I said, look, you can have a few cans for the bus on the way back. But I said, make sure you walk by them. <laughs> so our, they were miserable. Like, they just been relegated. And our lads are walking out with cans of beer. I, and I thought, well, I might live to rue that because we got them in the quarterfinal that year after going through the qualifiers. But we beat them that day as well. Yeah. But that day was a big day. It was a, it was a, it was a big statement by them to. And what, what was that like? When you talk about Dublin, you talk about the culture and the mental thing. How much was it about kind of breaking that kind of uh, link between a bit of success and the hype that would build around Dublin or protecting, keeping the players away from that? Because like that always seemed to me a thing before you and before mm. Jim Gavin that like Dublin would get carried away. A bit like kind of Manchester United in soccer. Kissing the jerseys. You know what I mean? Like, it's like when Roy Keane said recently when United... When Liverpool beat them 7-0, it was just after they won the Carabao Cup and he said, you always have to be vigilant at Manchester United for the bit of show business mm. coming in. And he yeah. started giving out about presentations on the pitch and all that. Was Dublin at that time, do you think, was like was there a, a tendency? Because they are the biggest yeah. county, the most glamorous county, the one that gets the most attention, no matter what. Yeah. Well, look, the, the truth of it is, like you're, you're living in a vibrant city that has all the national media based here. Uh, they're on your doorstep. So the easiest people to get a story on is Dublin and mm. to write about is Dublin because they're on your doorstep. So if you take your running a team or you're running any group, you have to deal in facts. You know, you, 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 when you're talking to them and, you know, if you say you had a good game, you need to back that up and say it's because you did this, this, this and this, right? Journalists are going to write a story based on what they saw where they're looking at two teams that so you don't necessarily have the insightful detail necessary some of them might but there'd be 10 of them writing about them and they'd be writing about everything in the club and, I, and, and there's so much noise coming at a Dublin player particularly at that time that we made it very clear to him say you can do all that and then you can go on to social media and we didn't have as much social mm. media but it was still there was a bit of it then um, I said if you're taking your opinion or your cues and your, your head is getting switched because you've read something about yourself or you know then you're taking your focus off what we need to do. <laughs> Paddy, Paddy O'Donoghue, who, who was his sidekick, who's very literal. Yeah. But did you not just said Paddy Rudd to cut out everything in the newspapers about Dublin yeah. and then leave the newspapers in the hotel where they were, but just go around systematically yeah, early in did. the morning? Right. He did, yeah. So, so, we, so we'd meet before again. You're meeting four hours, so they have yeah. to eat. But then we'd have papers for them, so they'd something to do. But all the sports section to do with Dublin was cut out of it. Because they actually did get into the habit of just ignoring it and, and, and going into a bit of a bubble, particularly when you were getting towards the championship. Yeah. But like, it's just that thing about a group is that you have to be getting your criticism, good or bad, from within the group. And if you're taking cues from your parents or your clubmates or whatever, your head's getting screwed. Yeah. And, and so it takes the focus off you, you know. Um, and... If it's a compliment, it's real when it comes from the group. If it's coming from somebody else, well, it's grand, but it doesn't mean anything towards yeah. the group achieving something, you know. And that was a problem. Definitely was. It was, it was a problem for the entire time I was there was you were all the time trying to keep a, an element of distance from that. And then at the same time as a team, you have a responsibility to the games to get some kind of messages out there that are, you know, meaningful to people because, you know, at the end of the day, it's, 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 you're representing your clubs and you're representing, mm. so they need to get something, you know, but it's trying to get the balance that, you know, it's interesting, but not. It was the conversion, yeah. I think, from which 
you know, all serious sport requires the conversion from sort of freewheeling football and football in a way as entertainment to football as war, as a a battle of character, of engaging seriously with it. And that was the big conversion, I think, that happened in 2010. And, of course, you can only do it with the right characters. You had some, I mean, you have some extra... We have spoken before about Michael Dara. I mean, I'm very friendly about Mike, yeah. with Michael Dara. I mean, you had characters like that who, who just, you know, they're, they're once-in-a-lifetime characters. But they were hilarious. I mean, they were hilarious. They were hilarious. Tell us about Michael Dara sort of arriving into the... But you had so many different guys, like Rory O'Carroll, Michael Dara McCauley, I think Niall Corky, who was there for two years, like Jer Brennan. These guys, they didn't know the opposition, truly. So we were playing Tyrone in that league game, and we said, in the quarterfinal of the All-Ireland, and we said to Michael Dara, you're picking up Sean Kavanagh. Who's he? And he was not joking. So our stats guy had to get pictures for a few of them so they knew their face. When they went the pitch. I, I, I'm not joking. Like Rory O'Carroll was like, who's he? Like, I, you could call him. Michael Dara didn't know who Sean Kavanagh was. Did not know. And, you, and, and you had to actually get a photograph of him. got pictures of, for him, Noel Corkery, Rory O'Carroll, <laughs> tell him who they were marking. Um, put them in a wee, in a wee book, you yeah, know, a wee, they a wee know, folder they of pictures. They just didn't believe in any of that stuff. They didn't read the paper. They, they didn't get... They, they didn't get sucked into the whole... Yeah. They had lives outside of football, yeah. big time. Yeah, Do you which know what was I mean? so important. Michael, oh, Dara, Michael Dara had always struck me. I mean, and I, I, I love and admire Michael Dara very greatly. You know, his work with organ donation and his work in the inner city and all the things that he does, all his altruism. I mean, we recently went to that mm. kick racism out day that he was running. Mm. And, you know, it's just, it just yeah. typifies him giving, yeah. giving off himself for the sake of doing good, yeah. you know, not with, with, with no return. But... I mean, I, I would have thought that at its base level, Michael wouldn't actually have much interest in football. He's more interested in the whole idea of throwing yourself into something. <laughs> Do you know what I mean by that? <laughs> well, he, 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 I, I won't say exactly when the game was, because I, I, I can't remember which game it was, but we were playing a big game. Anyway, championship. It was either a semi-final or final, <laughs> right? And he comes to me, David, he says, I'm playing a basketball match tomorrow. I said, we're playing on Sunday, that's Saturday. <laughs> he goes, yeah, but I promised the lads. I said, like, is there a team? He says, no, no, no. He says, it's kind of a little road league kind of we have going. <laughs> I said, Mike, he says, I just have to put you clear. He says, no, I'm not really that big into the guy. <laughs> and I'm going, right, fair enough. I said, just play it, but don't tell anyone. I said, just don't tell anyone. So he played away and then he played like a demon on, on, on the weekend. So he was a different totally different guy and I'd be, I'd be extremely fond I, to be honest with you all of them they, they but he was so he was so also so powerful I mean, oh, he was. if he if he picked up a player he put that player out of bit he was a brilliant brilliant athlete he was but tell, uh, and always with a smile but tell, tell the story about him it's one of my favourite stories but I would I would hate to tell it to butcher it, the one about him arriving on the morning of either a semi-final or final this is all Ireland yeah and he didn't have his boots. Well, we were in the dressing room, and I'm, I, you know, you get to go through all routine, put your boots on, everyone puts their boots on. I'm seeing him in his socks, and I'm like, fuck. <laughs> so I said, come over here, and I went into the toilet, I said, what's the story? He said, no boots. <laughs> uh, I'm roughly the same size as him, I'm like, we all had the same boots, same runners, you know, you yeah, get yeah. the things from Adidas or whoever. Uh, so, <laughs> I said, I, you better, I said, I've no runners now to wear out, so I said, you give me my runners, I you tape and I'll give you uh, my boots so anyway he wore them and didn't bother him like, I'd say I was a size bigger than him like I'd say I was a 13 he was a 12 and uh, not a bother on you know it was just like ah oh, well and he went out and played it didn't had no effect another fella that would drive him mad yeah. none of that that's all peripheral stuff to him. just yeah. let he's, me go out like, and play he's like a child in the playground I mean, I he's do. an exceptional person now. he really is he's um, I, 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 he wasn't on his own there, there there's, a, there's a, a lot of them there that even back then, before they'd won anything, I mean, there was fellas running soup kitchens down and with Brother Kevin and they were going over doing like other things out with sick kids out in Malahide. No publicity. No, not for that. They were I doing it for the real. I, I didn't find out that, that Michael was so heavily involved with things like that until I was asked to spend a day with um, a project down in 
in and around Croke Park and around the marina for for men who were recovering alcoholics, recovered recovering addicts, and it's a it's a project that that runs for about a month every year, and uh, you know I spent time with everybody during the day, and Michael Dara appeared in at one stage and ghosted about, said a load of him was gone, and all of them spoke in glowing terms about what Michael Dara had done for their lives the difference that he'd made and the difference that he makes in ways that aren't seen. Mm-hmm. You know, and he reminds me of going through life like a kid in a playground, you know, yeah. who's really enjoying everything mm-hmm. and can't understand why problems can't be sorted out, why people should, you know, turn a blind eye if someone is suffering. He's yeah. a tremendous... And like he's been dealt so many hammer blows in life, losing his mother young, losing his father young. And, you know, he, he he's just, he's an exceptional person in terms of always doing the right thing. He's always doing it. Yeah. Oro Gara told me a story at your mum's uh, mm. funeral. And uh, it was a very special day, if you don't mind me saying so. And just typical of the nobility of that Dublin GA family, you know. I mean, everybody was there. Everybody, like mm. no one wasn't there. But Oro Gara, Michael Dara was ahead of us when we were coming out of the chapel afterwards. Yeah. And you can always tell Michael Dara because he's so big, but he also has perpetual movement. He's moving yeah. from side to side. He's like, he's like, a, he's like a, a limbo dancer. I mean, he just moves all the time, stretches. And O'Gara says to me, fuck's sake, he says, you know, he says, he says, you know, he used to get fucking really nervous before a big game. So, you know, this is coming out of the sandwich. Right. And I said, go, go tell him. He says, oh, fuck, I shouldn't tell you this. He says, but, you know, he used to struggle to eat. You know, he was really nervous at the start. He says, and uh, he says, we're going to have to play a game. And, uh, the, the meal beforehand, it it a meatball got stuck in his throat. He says and he wasn't able to play the game. That's true. That's true. He had to go to hospital. He was joking. How did, how did a meatball get stuck in his throat? Oh, we were over this year and he got he goes out. Eyes were away with after the doctor bang into the hospital. We were playing. It was a league match in Crow Park. I was going fucking hell. At this stage, then we hadn't kind of had many wins and you're kind of thinking that fella is off the charts but he's a great guy and he led you know in terms of when you throw 48 transactions I mean, he did every one of them you know he never broke down and he he just pushed on through any pain barrier you know but he's just he was an exceptional exceptional individual still is uh-huh. very fond of him Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Yeah, I remember the morning after that. Because... You know, in a way, and I knew you were very um, confident about the 2011 final. But, you know, to actually see it all happening, you know, the level of implacable combat that the dubs brought that day. And I know that you, you know, the training, the tackling in particular was a huge emphasis for you. But the implacable combat that day against this extremely talented Kerry team who were, 
you could feel it in their you could feel it in their body language the fucking impertinence of Dublin to be doing this to us which is exactly what happened to them against Tyrone Tyrone in a way were your role models for how to handle this to fucking go for them you know and not be in awe of them and say fuck you we will fucking stand up and if you stand up for 70 minutes well done mm-hmm. and to watch that unfolding I thought was extraordinary you know the mm-hmm. goal when it came then people forget the goal didn't win the game it wasn't the goal that won yeah. the game and you got a brilliant point shortly yeah. after that and then your old pal Stephen yeah. Cluxton oh yeah look, it, was, it was a great day the person that everybody knows but nobody knows nobody knows uh, if you look at if you look at that game scientifically there's no way we should have gone forward behind we, we'd played bet. we should have been ahead further at half time we, you know you could tell it was our first all Ireland because we had some terrible bad misses that day and you know missed a goal, good goal chance and but but we had said the week of the game that with our athleticism and the work we'd done that year, if we were in four with 15 minutes to go, we'd win this game because we had the armory to throw on the pitch to run at them when they'd be tired, you know. And, and it did unfold that way because we really, really outworked them in the last 15 minutes. Now, it shows you how good a team was that they hung on and, and they got some tremendous scores back. Um, but but it was really, really dominated that last 10 minutes yeah. with, with the physicality and the running at them and our tackling. I think we out-tackled them 20 to 2 or something in the last 15 yeah. minutes. Um, I got a lot of turnovers. And one of the biggest guys that did it that day was Dermot Connolly. Now, he wouldn't be renowned for his tackling, but he got more turnovers in that last 15 minutes and was on the ball more. A player you had dropped for a year. Yeah, yeah. Well, Pri- there, prior to that. Is there a story about in 2010 you given them a fitness test uh, Paul Flynn wrote about this. He gave him a fitness test, and everyone passed except Dermot Connolly and, and Bernard Brogan. Do yeah, you remember that? I do. And you then did the test yourself. I said to them, the level they dropped out at, I said, I, and I, I was only 37, but I was like probably 39 then, I hadn't trained for two years. I said, I could get to that level. And I said, you're doing it again straight away. And I got to the level they did. Now, nearly had a heart attack, by the way, getting <laughs> to the level. But they kept going then close to the to the other lads. But they did it straight afterwards and did about 20% better, you know. Um, so I don't know why I did it at the time, but uh, I was making the point to them that it was pathetic what they'd done the first time. I think that 2011 team was the start of what Colin Cooper described as he said to me, you know, the problem was playing against this Dublin team is that they completely ignore you. You talked about that bubble yeah. of the great teams, which this team undoubtedly was. This was the start of it. But I think the essential start, because that laborious, obsessive work that Patrick did over that agonising first two years and then setting setting it rolling, you know, that's that's what Jim inherited. Jim was brilliant, you know, and never put a foot wrong. But I think that that, those foundations were in place then for that thing which was that implacability. Mm. Like we don't really give a fuck who you are. And the one mistake they made was in the 2014 semi-final against Donegal when they they they, they thought that they could defy the laws of physics. We know that Donegal are playing a heavy blanket mm. defence and counter-attack football, but we're just going to play our normal game and beat them anyway. And, you know, and after that, though, they made the... Yeah. Made the adjustments and really that was it yeah I think look I think the thing that we made the biggest difference is we got defensively structurally better set up and Jim got it even much better even after that they became very very difficult to score against and yeah. if you can keep the score down and you have decent players like Connolly and that well then you've half the battle brilliant characters yeah but like we tried to get to a system of play when I had the team to, that we didn't matter who we were playing and we never got obsessed about marking a guy because we went well we want to pick six guys that can mark him because the way the game was moving yeah. they were moving all over the shop and we didn't want a guy taking changing our structure so we'd stay in our positions and if you went out there somebody else would pick him up and he went there so it made it simpler um, didn't always work but it, we, we never got obsessed about the opposition and or, or man marking an individual we kind of you know, you'd say, yeah, ideally you pick him up, but you're, if you're picking up the other fella, that's fine as well, you know. Morning after the 2011 final, but seven o'clock, I, I had, I was, I stayed in Dublin, I was driving up to start a trial in, in, in Belfast, and I got a phone call from Pat's number, and he says, we want to sing something to you here. It was the Dublin team, I think you were in the Piper's Rest. We were in the, no, the Boar's Head, I thought. <laughs> we sang the triangle, the whole fucking team. <laughs> seven o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning. But what a journey. 
That what was a great. journey. It was so fucking nice. ballsy to take that team. Like, you were only mm. stopped playing yourself. I was 37 when I think back oh, to it. I was damn. 37 when I took them first, yeah. In fact, you, just on that, because you talk about there sitting there in 2009 with the list of players, you know, yeah. who would never play for Dublin again. And then there you are with them and you, you speak so affectionately of the team over that time. And is that the secret of, of what you see as management in a way, like to sort of retain that kind of optimism because you know you could easily have of 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 gone at scorched earth, yeah. You know, in and like, or like, how hard is it not to fall out with people when things are going badly wrong, and then retain that kind of hopefulness and optimism? Yeah, yeah I think I think that's one big thing. I, I think the, you know, uh, uh, this guy pointed out to me. He says, he says that was eleven, nine of them are very very talented. And mm. he says it's very hard to create talent. If they've talent, we can fix the other stuff, mm. but the talent is and you know that's true in anything if somebody has massive talent getting the best out of them that helps the group that's there's a skill in that definitely and and uh, I, I do think that you have to believe in them if you don't believe in them they'll feel that mm-hmm. you know and if you doubts they'll have doubts so I think as the manager you have to cover off so many bases that you actually really believe that they're going to do something and if you really believe then there's a fair chance that they're going to achieve and there's just endless hours of work in that because it's like doing an exam. If you if you skip a bit, then you'll have your doubts. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're if you're thorough in what you do, then you'd be very confident. And, and and also if you're very clear about the type of player you want and what you want them to do, then it's easy to pick teams. You know, if you're unsure and you're changing from this system to that system, and you know, you, you, I think as a manager, well, certainly I had to have an idea of the type of player I wanted for each position and I kind of broke it down into what what would be the traits of those and then ultimately the biggest deciding factor is their character and their attitude and you can't measure that but you can just see it you know with the way they are in training the way they accept you know setbacks you know if a fella the head drops or has a droopy face on him because he was dropped you, you might have work to do there whereas if he if he I kind of nearly looking you in the eye going saying yeah right I'll prove you wrong and gets on with his job and then comes on and does a fantastic job so you have to pick him the next day that's what you really want but I think if you're fair and you're clear what's required and if they're not doing it you can show them you didn't do it like so that's why you're not I remember asking one player who has a lot of tolerance I think he's eight I said how many tackles do you have today oh, I said I said I had five I said five I said, you had none. I said, I definitely had five, definitely had five. I said, I said, right, come on. And we watched the match. <laughs> Jesus, he said, I was sure I had five. <laughs> but like, that's but players in their heads. He yeah. was kind of like, well, that was nearly one. I said, no, that wasn't a tackle. And, you know, he, he became a seriously, seriously good player, but he was delusional at the time yeah, about yeah. what he was doing. So I, I do think though, you have to, be really straight up with people. Realism. I mean, a, yeah. a metaphor, I think, I was a, sub, a symbol for the transformation of that Dublin team was was Bernard Brogan. You know, because Bernard wouldn't naturally be, in my view, seeing him starting off and all, wouldn't naturally have been a team player. You know, Bernard, to me, when he was, and he was only a bit player when he was in the mm. Dublin team prior to your arrival. But, I mean, if memory serves me right, you... You left him in the subs for a very prolonged period. Mm. How long was that? Uh, he missed the first four league games in 2010, which he, thank God we won. When you were trying to make a point, it would have been a disaster. We didn't why win we, you were making the so, point? So we had said, look, we were going to go after tackling and every guy had a target of, let's say, I don't know, six or seven, whatever it was. And he was shooting the lights out in training because he had got seriously fit because he did the training during the winter. But he was doing no tackling. But he, like, he scoring five points in training. So I just didn't pick him the first game, never said a word to him and brought him on for about two minutes at the end and the game was over. And he scored, I think he scored two points. And, uh, anyway, next game, didn't pick him, was doing no tackling during the week, never said a word to him. And the third game, now we'd won two and then we looked like we were something decent and after the third game, he did, I didn't play him at all and uh, he came up to me and says like, what have I to do? Well, he said, it's very simple. I said, we're going after that you have a big fat zero every day of training. So I said, if you start doing that, you'll get played. But you're on a forward. I said, yeah, yeah, we're forward. But we all said we're going to do this for the moment to see because it's going to help us. I said, I don't care if you don't score. You don't care if I don't score. Yeah, I said, just for the moment. I said, obviously down the line we do. And then 
he worked so hard on his tackling and his tackling technique. If you if you told Bernard it's that, he would then try to become the best at that because he, he really was a very diligent guy. So once he got that and then saw, oh, well, actually, if I turn over a fella, it's easier to score than me winning and having to beat him. He became obsessed with it and, and he became a seriously difficult guy to get past. But wasn't it funny that 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 in in doing that and submitting himself to that for the good of the, the team, it freed him as well. Dude. Mentally and as a footballer. Dude. I mean he, he and and he wasn't it wasn't as lopsided then in two thousand everybody where he was taking up the yeah. whole scoring board. He was just part of a team. He was and then if he had a couple of wives it didn't knock him because yeah. he knew he could go out and help yeah. defend and you know he would get rewarded from that because that was as just as an important part of the game Pat Gilroy psychologist well, that's it <laughs> the value of psychology I think that's our lesson from today Pat you may have sold a company while we've been chatting so we better wind it up here <laughs> go, for, go for champion <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much it's been fantastic listening to you today thank you pleasure pleasure thanks guys ah hungry feeling come on In the morning, the squirrels were falling. Get up, get up, you bousy, and clean out your cell. 